Good morning. My name is Sam McLaughlin, and I'm the senior pastor here at Bellmead United Methodist Church, and I just want to add my welcome. We're so glad you're here. If we haven't met, I would love the chance to meet you after the service, and we have a gift for you. If you're with us online, we say welcome to you again as well. Today, we are starting a three-week sermon series called What in the Word? Uh, a year ago, we did this kind of first part of this series last October. Um, that doesn't mean you're missing anything. It just means we've, we've done some questioning about scripture and you can go back and watch or listen if you're curious. But this phrase, what in the word, it, it actually came from my then four-year-old son. He kept trying to say in a very surprised manner, like, what in the world? But it kept coming out, what in the word? And so the more he said it, um, his pastor mom was like, hmm, that sounds like a sermon series about our questions of scripture. And so that is really what this series is about. I have asked you, congregation members, for your questions about faith, about scripture, uh, and you have submitted them to me and I have chosen. <laughs> and so today we are looking at, uh, did Jesus ever question why me? or say to God, I'm not doing this. Uh, next week, we're looking at, does prayer really work? And in our third week, uh, is Jesus the only way to God? Just some really simple stuff, you know? Uh, on our uh, Wednesday night, just in, in case you missed this, we're also um, working with the question, what does the Bible say about human sexuality? That's a question we've been asked um, really over, over time, and uh, we feel ready to offer that as a course. Uh, this is a, a question that needs to be um, a four-week thing in dialogue with one another, and so if that is something you are seeking to understand or you struggle with, we invite you to our Wednesday night class at six o'clock uh, in our new community room. And you can find details about that on, um, on our website. I was gonna say on Facebook. It's like I'm just programmed to say Facebook. It's also on Facebook, I'm sure. So in this series, just to get started, you know, what we're trying to do is really think about uh, what scripture is, what's the nature of scripture, how do we understand it? Is it literal, figurative, metaphorical? Uh, what are its genres and what import does it have for our lives all these years later? I want to affirm in this series that questions are good. Some of us were raised in traditions where we were taught not to question scripture, to not ask questions of scripture, but we know that it's okay to be inquisitive, to investigate, that these are the ways that we grow. We know that people ask Jesus questions in scripture and he answered them. Now, sometimes the answers were puzzling, or if he was asked a question, he just returned it with a question, you know? Like, that's what you do if you don't know the answer, by the way. You just ask a question back, right? Jesus said, who do you say I am, right? So this series, I wanna talk about and affirm that questions are good. I want us to think critically for ourselves. Now, this is important in every aspect of life, but it's really important when it comes to your theology. If you are going to believe something, you need to understand where that came from in scripture. I don't want you to come here Sunday and believe and digest everything that I say. That's really not the goal. The goal is for you to think critically for yourself and to take the time to do the investigative study of scripture. 
I wanna help us understand that our theology changes in time. It changes because of experience, uh, because of what someone else interprets or witnesses to us about the gospel. And so what you conclude today may not be what you believe in a couple of years, and that's okay. In fact, that is spiritual maturity. That is discipleship, that is growth. I want to help us sit with mystery. Something else we're often taught is that we've gotta have like right and wrong, black and white, cut and dry. What would it look like to live our way into some answers, right? To be okay with having options instead of conclusions. Um, I wanna help us see that we can still glean truth from what may be hard to understand, and that a more rich understanding of scripture is found when we take the time to dig deeper than face value. That does not mean that I don't think we should take scripture literally. It means I think we should dig into the context, what is timeless, what is time sensitive, and what it may mean for us today. And so as we begin looking at this passage, I wanna, wanna show you uh, sort of what I mean like in this, rich, how rich the Bible can be. This story is in the book of Luke, but it's also in Matthew and Mark and sort of in John. And so we're gonna look at some of the details that are similar and different between uh, this text and these gospels. Now, Matthew and Mark say that Jesus went to Gethsemane. Luke here says that Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. In John, it says that Jesus went to a garden, but it never says anything about Jesus being in prayer. So our tradition has taken these gospels and has said, you know what? We're gonna say that Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's how we often talk about this passage, even though Luke does not say that directly and John doesn't even talk about prayer. Uh, when we look at the disciples and who was present with Jesus, Matthew says Peter and two sons of Zebedee. Mark says Peter, James, and John, so names each person. Luke and John only say that disciples went with him. We don't know which disciples he's talking about. Uh, mostly our tradition believes Peter, James, and John. In Matthew and Mark, we see that Jesus sort of has this back and forth pattern. He goes to pray, and then he comes back to the disciples, and he's like, why are you asleep? And then he goes to pray, and he comes back. He does that three times in both Matthew and Mark. In Luke, Jesus only prays once. That's all that we see. Uh, and in John, again, there's no prayer at all, you know. <laughs> um, as we look at Jesus's emotional state, his physical state, Matthew and Mark both have him saying this exact phrase, my soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Here in Luke, we're told that he was weak and that, was he, that he was in anguish. Now, some manuscripts do not include verses 43 and 44 that talk about Jesus being weak and in anguish. Now, what I mean by that is that we do not have any originals of the New Testament. What we have are copies of copies. And so some of the copies of the New Testament documents do not have verses 43 and 44. This is what they say. 
An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Now, to me, it's interesting that Luke made sure that his text included these words because angels also tend to Jesus in the wilderness in the book of Mark. Okay, chapter one, verse 12 says, at once the spirit sent Jesus out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and angels attended him. Now, I'm showing you this as an example to say, I don't know that it matters if we have the 100% accurate, clear cut, dry answer as to what happened that night. But what we can say, what we can deduct from this is that maybe in the midst of our temptations and our trials and these times when we're fasting and feel like we're in the wilderness, angels attend to us. God comes to us. God is with us. Luke says that he was sweating so much, not that he was sweating blood, but he was sweating so much that his sweat was as thick as drops of blood falling to the ground. The posture that Jesus takes in this prayer is different in our text. Luke says that Jesus is kneeling. Matthew says that he fell to the ground. Um, Mark says that he fell to the ground. Matthew says that he fell with his face to the ground. Like imagine him cheek to dirt, you know? You've had those moments with your face on the ground. Now, as we talk about the cup and the words that he say, he says about his suffering, Matthew, Mark, and Luke kind of sound the same. Matthew says, Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Mark makes it a little more personal. Abba, you know, my father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. Here Luke says, Father, if you're willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Now, as we talk about the cup, there are some other writings from that day, like uh, the martyrdom of Isaiah and the martyrdom of Polycarp, who was a bishop. Um, and in those instances, the cup is like this metaphor for martyrdom. Here, maybe we think about the cup as sort of a metaphor for this suffering that lies ahead of Jesus. You know, we've talked about uh, here imagining our own suffering and our own grief as like a cup that we hold. And, and we We've said, you know, we can't continually just drink from this cup of suffering in the midst of the hard things that we're facing. Like, it's too much to bear. We have to allow ourselves to set it down, to have a break, to experience the joy and the goodness in front of us without guilt. What I find extremely interesting as we think about this cup is that Jesus has just left uh, in verses right above this, Jesus has just left the Last Supper and, and a different cup. Maybe he's referencing the same one, I'm not sure. But uh, Luke 22, uh, 14 says, when the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined around the table together. And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat with you before my death occurs. And he takes the cup and he gives thanks 
gives thanks and divides it, says, take this and divide it among you. And he says, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Now, this is why in our communion liturgy, we lift the cup. And we say, Jesus said, this is my blood poured out for you and for many for the forgiveness of sins. Do this in remembrance of me. So maybe when we hold that cup, we can remember both of these moments, like the one at the table where Jesus is going to drink the cup for us because he longs to taste the kingdom. And this moment where he's saying, God, please take this cup away from me this moment where we see that he is fully human. Did Jesus ever say to God, I'm not going to do this? No, not exactly in those words, but he did say, take this cup away from me. If it's possible, I don't wanna do this. He did feel overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. He was weak, full of anguish, and he questioned whether he wanted to or could carry on with what he felt God called him to do. So I wanna think about that, that moment in kind of two ways. If we can just for a minute imagine sort of big picture, take Jesus's, uh, Jesus going to his death out of the equation for a second, right? We are talking about Jesus, how he can relate to those moments when we are not sure that we can go on with what God is asking us to do. And what I like about that is that here Jesus takes his place among all the people that God called throughout scripture. Probably all the people who God called throughout humanity who said, you know what, choose somebody else, not me. I don't wanna do it. Uh, think about Moses. God comes to Moses and Moses' argument is I can't speak eloquently. And God says, well, that's okay because I am the mouthpiece of all mortals. And Moses says, sorry, God, that's not good enough, you know? And God says, okay, Moses, fine. I'll give you your brother Aaron because we know that he speaks really well and he'll be by your side the whole time. Think about Elijah who has this like battle royale with Ahab and Jezebel and they are coming after him. And Elijah is running for his life to the woods and he goes to the woods and he lies down under a bush and he prays to God. He says, I've had enough. Take my life. I don't wanna do this anymore. And then he lays down and he goes to sleep, right? The list goes on and on. Perhaps this is why Jesus says in this moment, pray so that you will not fall into temptation because we are tempted to run away from what is hard. Pray that you will not get, in, get, get tempted by what keeps you from what God is calling you to do, especially when it looks impossible. Now, there is a difference between staying even when something is hard and knowing when it's time to go, knowing when it's time to move on. We experience this sometimes in our work, uh, in our relationships and organizations that we are a part of. Uh, there's an organization called Ministry Architects and they send um, great material and resources to people in ministry and, and to pastors and, and churches. And they recently sent this article called, Should I Stay or Should I Go? 
And it, you know, it's kind of this question of like, is this God's will or is God calling me on to something else? And so I love how they did this. They kind of on one side put like, here are some signs that you're in a difficult situation, but not necessarily signs that you should leave yet. So this was their stay bucket and they listed six things. And they said, uh, here are some signs that you should begin a discernment process for something else. And this is the go bucket. And so the stay bucket says this. It says, uh, you're exhausted. Your feelings have been hurt. You haven't been able to accomplish all of your goals. You are lonely. Your boss is extremely difficult. You struggle to find volunteers. That one's written for the church, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Those are signs that like things are hard but maybe you can stick it out if you really feel like God is calling you to this. Uh, here are signs that maybe you should go. You cannot promote the vision and the values of the organization. Your values are in direct conflict with the strategies that your job requires. You have feelings of conflict and discouragement that have lasted longer than 12 months. Your family is feeling the negative effects of your situation and has been for some time. Your relationship with God is suffering. The stress has begun to affect your health, right? And so here in this moment, uh, Jesus knew his pur purpose, felt like this was God's will, and he could see the resurrection and redemption was ahead. For us, we have to sort of discern these moments. Should I stay or should I go? That's a big picture way to think about it. And you can decide if you wanna take it or not. Now, let's look at the more acute picture, right? Jesus wasn't facing a bad day or a bad month. He was facing pain and grief and his coming death. He would be betrayed by the people that he trusted and loved the most. He would be arrested and questioned, beaten, mocked, pierced. He would gasp for air. He would feel the weight of his own body as he shifted onto nails. He would not ask, why me? But he would ask, why have you forsaken me? Right? Even if God did not truly abandon Jesus in that moment, Jesus felt abandoned. He felt God forsaken. He felt isolated and left alone. There's a, a German theologian named Jürgen Moltmann, and he says that feeling, that moment of God forsakenness makes Jesus a brother to the crucified, a brother to all people who felt like God has abandoned them in their moment of need, to anyone facing violent death, to anyone trying to cope with violent death. When we talk about a God who is fully human, this is the magnitude of it. Right? You can walk with someone who's going through a miscarriage. It is different if you have felt that in your own body. You, know, you can walk with someone who's going through cancer. It is different if you have felt that in your own body. We are talking about a God who suffers as us and with us on a DNA level. You know, the longer that I'm in ministry and the longer that I see death and experience death, the less afraid I am of dying and the more afraid I am of how I'm going to die. 
Like, I hear this from people, uh, some of you in your 70s and 80s who say things to me like, uh, I don't know if I'm going to be here for another 10 or 15 years. I really don't like hearing that. And you say, you know, how I'm going to die is what I think about now. I hope I go quick. I hope I don't suffer. Or talking about someone that you love, I hope she doesn't suffer. I hope that she goes quick. Like when we talk about a fully divine and fully human God, we're talking about the one who knew that death was coming and was afraid of it. And so he understands your fear. In Matthew and Mark, it says the disciples were sleeping because their eyes were heavy. But here in Luke, it says he found them asleep because they were exhausted from sorrow. So maybe your own mortality is not your fear today, but you know what it's like to be exhausted from sorrow, overwhelmed by grief, especially on top of everything else that you are trying to hold into place. Jesus knows what it's like to fall on your knees, to put your face to the ground and feel this unmanageable, bone-heavy kind of sorrow. He knows what it's like to beg God for this cup of suffering to pass. He is with you in your sorrow. But what he also shows us is that it's possible to get back up on your feet and keep going. That earnest prayer can realign your heart with God's heart and give you strength somehow, some way to keep bringing about God's kingdom and will on this earth as it is in heaven. You know, is God going to call you to die? I don't know. Is your conviction and your calling something that may lead you to death? I don't know. Is this your suffering a cross to bear? I don't love that language because I think it, it puts people in unhealthy places that maybe aren't God's will. I think, you know, Jesus is the one who bears the cross. He's the savior. He's the redeemer. What I think I know is that we will face a thousand kind of little deaths and big deaths as we pray and try to live out, thy will be done. We will have to die to ourself, to our ego, to our pride, to our boredom and fear and anger and selfishness, knowing that we can rise with hope and ambition and redemption and joy and conviction in this moment, in his full humanity, Jesus shows us that we do not worship golden calves and immovable, apathetic gods. We worship a God who shows us what it looks like when our spirit breaks and we're unsure if we can go on. A God who gives us permission to be fully human embracing vulnerability and fear as real emotions that do ultimately grant us greater intimacy with the divine and with one another. And by following his example, we are shaped into disciples who choose to lose their lives in order to find them. Disciples who surrender it all to find it all. 
disciples who keep drinking from the cup of salvation even when death tries to get in the way. Thanks be to God. Amen.